Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Securing Bridges podcast. You're about to join Alyssa Miller as she sits down with senior and executive security leaders to share stories of success and failure while working across business teams. It's time to build and secure the bridge to the business. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Oh, well, hello there, everybody. We're back once again. I'm Alyssa Miller, and it is another exciting episode of Securing Bridges. Here we are. We're talking every week to senior leaders, executive leaders, just people who are in the cybersecurity industry for a long time are doing really cool things. But we're not just talking about cybersecurity. You know that. We are talking about how we connect cybersecurity with what matters the most, the things that we're trying to defend, the business in most cases. So we've had a lot of great discussions. I think we're on episode eight or nine. I I don't remember. I should stop trying to remember because I keep screwing this up every week. I don't remember anymore. All I know is we've had amazing guests every single show. Hopefully you caught last week with Olivia, Dr. Olivia Snow. That was an amazing episode and really got into some topics that were probably a little different than we're used to talking about. And this week we're we're wrapping back into more of the, the corporate security side, maybe a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about CISOs and a few other things because we've got an amazing guest with us this week. It's Malcolm Harkins. Malcolm, how are you? Great, Alyssa. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is awesome. Just adding to the list, adding to the list of amazing folks we've had on this show. I, it, it's wonderful. Um, in case there's folks out there who don't know you from social media or from a lot of your experience, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what you're up to these days. Yeah, so I am uh, currently the Chief Security and Trust Officer with an early stage startup called Epiphany Systems. I've uh, been with the company since uh, its launch time uh, about a year ago, going into Black Hat we launched, but I joined a little bit ahead of time uh, before the launch. I've, I've uh, been in the industry a few decades. I uh, spent time at Silence, which was acquired by BlackBerry a few years ago. I was Chief Security and Trust Officer there. And prior to that, my life was kind of simple. I uh, straight out of graduate school, I started with Intel Corporation uh, in business roles first in finance, procurement, business operations. And then uh, tripped my way into InfoSec a little over 20 years ago and uh, eventually became worldwide chief security and privacy officer and overseeing uh, everything from corporate emergency management, all the typical IT stuff, product security. Uh, I had my fingers in, in a wide variety of uh, aspects of, of various risk controls, compliance activities, and then a little bit of influencing Intel's uh, strategy with it when it came to security in the marketplace. Very cool and very impressive. Uh, you said something there that that caught my ear a little bit. You said you tripped your way into cybersecurity. So now I'm kind of curious if you can share that a little bit more of that story. How did you end up here? Yeah, so I, it was never my intent to actually go into security. I, I was a, and still am a mission-oriented person. And in uh, summer, fall of uh, 2001, two events uh, that were seminal uh, in many ways, uh, physical and logical. We had 9-11, which I think we all remember. And then we had uh, the Code Red and NIMDA viruses. Both of those uh, events 
caused Andy Grove, who was still running Intel at the time, uh, and his uh, book, The Only, Parano Only the Paranoid Survive, he was that type of individual. He uh, created a safety and security task force and pulled together a few corporate officers and frankly was beating the crap out of them verbally every two weeks for a couple hours to deal with the availability risk issues physically and logically. And Intel CIO at the time, Doug Bush, uh, called me up and said, Malcolm, I need you to run security for me. Uh, and I'm like, uh, Doug, I really don't know crap about security. And he's like, that's fine. I got a bunch of security geeks who don't know crap about the business. They'll teach you and you'll teach them. And that was a little over uh, 20 years ago and I haven't uh, ever left the space. So uh, let's just say it's uh, sticky with my sense of purpose and mission. So depressing thought, because you said, yeah, we probably all remember that. There are people in this industry now who don't remember. Some of that weren't even born when 9-11 happened. That's true. That, that to me is like, it, it, it's so astounding because it, it's hard to believe, you know, because we're still, we, we still talk about the effects of that. Those of us who did live through that and remember it well, I mean, what life was like before and after. And it, it changed a lot of things, including like you were saying, where you know, Intel and countless, countless other organizations really had to start to look at the world a little differently, not just in terms of physical security, which of course, you know, we, we to this day feel those implications, yeah. but what are some other things, I, you know, just looking back, if you were to think about it, I mean, what are some of those key areas? You mentioned NIMDAvirus, and that was, you know, part of the same thing back in 2001. But where have you experienced kind of some of those other areas where we just had sort of, you know, those moments that really stood out for you in, in the course of your career that's just kind of, you know, keystone moments, if you will? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. So six months into running security, and I still actually use this slide in various speeches um, 20 years later, I painted a, a picture that I called the perfect storm of, of risk. Because even in a technology company back then, Intel's belief when they asked me to do the role was, we're going to uh, put Malcolm in place to kind of up-level drive and en enhance the control environment. We'll give them money and, and people and resources. But once that construction of the control environment for that time period was done, we could roll it all back. So that, that was the perspective uh, 20 years ago. But six months into it, I, as I was learning from the security team and, and deep security experts uh, and, and technical experts at that, I drew this, this perfect storm of risk, how um, threat actors and threat agents exploit vulnerabilities, you know, going after information assets, causing risk issues. My job is to put in controls in place to, to manage that cycle, right? Now, there was a hidden hand that I drew on the picture, um, starting with geopolitical nation states, because nation states are both threat actors and threat agents, and they're also legal and regulatory bodies. So they drive two aspects of risk, accelerating the risk cycle for business risk. Now, this is again, long before Sarbanes-Oxley, before the California breach bill, before all those other things. But as you started, as I started forecasting out again, I'm a former finance guy, did strategic planning. So I, I, future casting where things would go was required as a finance person. Why? So that you could manage the books, manage the spending, all that type of stuff. I applied that same discipline in the risk space. Now, with some controls, I needed a, a level of assurance, a higher level of assurance that Malcolm is Malcolm, his device is his device, where he's at, what he's doing, how he's doing it. 
Now, as you gather more of that information, that's identity information, right? Now, two things happen when you gather and start processing that stuff. One, you just increase your privacy risk. Hence the legal and regulatory thing doing, uh, you know, accelerating that cycle. And then guess what? Identity related attacks, because now that you have more identity information and you have other things about it, identity now starts to become a, a pretty critical item even well beyond uh, you know, what we thought of years ago. So I, I, I drew it to explain the confluence of independent yet interdependent things that would brew into a perfect storm of risk. Now, I still use it as a talk. You know, The World Economic Forum is happening this week. In January, they published their annual uh, cyber, you know, worldwide risk report. Cyber is still in there. But even long before the World Economic Forum was, was putting it in the top five, six, seven, eight, nine risks. I was looking at it and going, there's a societal risk that we're starting to create when it comes to technology risk. And, and we've certainly seen that you know, balloon and blossom over the years with everything from uh, you know, disinformation and misinformation campaigns affecting uh, you know, voters sentiment and people stuff, the um, you know, breaches that have occurred that while they may not have really affected operationally a company, they put consumers at risk. You've got IoT related issues. You've got you know, medical devices that could be hacked. You've got all these things that on the one hand create a promise um, of technology. And I grew up in the tech industry. So I believe in that hope and promise of technology to connect and enrich lives, create social and economic benefit. But at the same time, there's a peril side of it that in many ways we've not fully understood and we've, in some cases, blatantly ignored the obligations we have to manage not only the creation of technology, but the management of it post-creation, magnifying the risk issues. Wow. Okay, so you touched on like a whole bunch of my pet peeves. I love it because <laughs> there are so many things in there I would love to deconstruct that now my mind is like going a million miles a second. Where do we go now? What should we talk about first? Because what I really love though, across everything you just were talking about was, and, and I hope that all of my listeners will pay attention to this. Did you notice all the different types of risk we just talked about in that, that span of just a couple minutes of you know everything you were diving into. This is a thing that for me is important for security, I think, to understand. Because I've heard the I've heard the phrase, and I actually just did a talk yesterday where I kind of beat up on people who use this phrase, that you know, you'll hear some people say, well, security is a risk management function. And I, I stop them because it's like, wait, wait, wait. Now there is this. There's a, there's a Venn diagram of risk management and cybersecurity. And yes, there is some overlap, but do you really want to pigeonhole yourself? First of all, that that's all cybersecurity does is we're just risk management one. And on the flip side, do you understand to, you know, the point I was making about how many other types of risks, like we are such a small brick in that huge wall of risk that business leaders have to consider that, this is the thing that really drives me crazy. Like you, you can't, when if if risk management, risk reduction is the only value you can bring to the business, 
you really have like put yourself into a very small little container that doesn't really demonstrate a whole lot of value. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. You no, know, I thousand percent agree with you. You know, there's, um, you know, risk is interesting, right? Because it's temporal, yeah. right? It, it shifts time to time. You have context. Is it risk to self? Is it risk to customers? Is it risk to society? So you have the different optics of who might be impacted by the risk conditions. And then there's the ethical component of it. You know, what's the, what's the ethically the right thing to do, right? Um, not only for the shareholders and the company, but, you know, for the customers and society. But, but you know, I, I longed believed, again, even growing up in a tech, co tech company, and a lot of peers back in the day would would tease me. I had it easy because I was in a technology company, right? And they were in food and beverage or retail or whatever. And I'm like, ah, maybe a little bit easier because there's certain technical discussions I can have that, that the management team would get. But when you think about risk, there's there's, again, a bias that we all bring to it based upon our perspective, based upon the structure, based upon our backgrounds, me having an economics and finance background, I think about the context of, of risk, not only from the information, the technology, but more broadly from the business. I mean, it, it's, you go back uh, 10, 15 years ago, and I, I had this discussion um, pre-COVID at a, at a security event, and there's a panel talking about migration to the cloud, right? Um, and everybody's talking about the typical cloud-related risks you know, uh, the shift and configurations, all those type of things. And I'm in the back and I kind of raise my hand and, hey, all good. But but what about the strategic risks? I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how do you know the cloud vendor you're using isn't going to compete with you? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, look at what happened to Target. It paid Amazon to build and run its store. And then all of a sudden Amazon's competing in consumer goods, right? So, you know, you, so you have these interesting ways to frame and look at risk. And then the other thing that, that, is, that is true because of those biases is we all misperceive it, right? And, and if you look at all the decisions that we've made and we, if we have smart people that aren't trying to create harm for them for others you go why do we have so much risk other than we did a poor job we've gotten poor solutions from the security industry and people are misperceiving it so that's interesting you've touched on ethics a couple times in this now and that's something i really want to unpack as well because you know think about it from a risk perspective right i mean there's lots of risks. You talked about the, oh, you have so many different types, market risk, strategic risk. There's a lot of things that, you know, as a CEO, I have to sit there and consider that go beyond cybersecurity. There's also, though, when you, you mentioned doing things just because it's the right thing or the ethical thing, this is another place I'm finding. I get a lot of pushback from people when I talk about the need for vendors to consider the use of their technology and the potential abuses yes. of their technology and plan for that. Now, like I said at the beginning of the show, we had Dr. Olivia Snow on here last week. And I don't know if you saw the show or not, but she was talking about you know, how technology continues to be created yep. that then gets abused 
to attack sex workers. Yep. And I mean, it's a, it was a really poignant you know, discussion to realize that people who follow me on Twitter know that I have an ongoing just love-hate relationship with Apple because of the same thing where they will create technology that is cool and innovative and people love it, great, but they don't seem to consider the abuse factors or if they consider it, they certainly don't seem to do a lot to to at least initially you know, work to, to resolve those. I mean, the, the air tag is the one that everybody knows I've been complaining about a ton. Like they released this thing. It was told to them through lots of accounts that I've seen that, okay, this is, this is a really bad idea. You need to do a lot more to secure this. And yet there are people who'd be like, but it, it's so useful. And, you know, well, they're not the only ones who make that tech that does that, but it's like, yeah, they're the ones that are most accessible. So I'm, I'm curious as you look at that, you know, for thinking again, putting the risk hat on now, is there a risk that, that kind of drives that, that need to be a little bit more ethical and, and understand that side of the world? Yeah, I do believe that we should have codified in, in organizations and specifically within the role of chief security officer, chief information security officer, chief privacy officer, um, some level of uh, ethical principles that, that bind us towards making ethical decisions. You know, and again, a lot of people go, yeah, but it's different. I go, yeah, let's roll back the clock, you know, uh, what, 50, almost 50 years ago. Uh, Lee Iacocca was running the Pinto division at Ford. We all know what, what occurred there, right? They, they framed the risk decision in one of liability and in profit loss, pennies and dollars and cents, right? Yep. I, I don't think he was trying to kill anybody, but the way in which they framed the discussion led them towards trying to compete and, and keep their time to market to compete against Volkswagen in the low-end car market. They had a patent on an $11 part that would have made a gas tank safer. They didn't want to retool the manufacturing. Yeah. Right? So, so I think when we look at other industries and in other situations, we go, boy, that's unethical. But, but we don't look at it that way for ourselves with, with respect to these things. And I think of, uh, again, all the collection and processing of data, right? If we looked at every time we collected data particularly when it, when it associates with an individual or a behavior, that it was like a, that it was toxic. It was like a chemical, right? So again, I grew up in a manufacturing environment that had a lot of you know, deadly chemicals. You don't just have people playing around with chemistry in a way that, that might create you know, noxious fumes, kill people, an environmental hazard, right? You have some level of protocols um, and, and we don't do that in, in the technology space as much as we could or should. I think people attempt to, um, but I think, you know, in some cases, the decisions they make are rationalized and then they look at it and go, well, my obligations to my shareholders and I need to manage risk again to self, meaning the entity of the organization and worry less about the risk to others. And I think that that is a, um, uh, failing in in how we're talking about the the real issues, and to your point, 
the the downside occurrences um, that can occur because people didn't think about the abuse or the misuse of the technology or the platform they've created. So who do we hold accountable for this though? I mean, is it the CISO? Do we, I mean, where, where does this fall? If, especially if I'm thinking about, you know, the technology in terms of say applications that, you know, fail to protect consumer data and get abused in that way or something of that nature. I mean, who, who ultimately should we be holding accountable for this? Well, you know, it's interesting. So let's, let's tease out the word accountability. It's actually two words, account, which means to, to measure, to reckon, to, you know, really have the, the data and ability, you know, meaning do, do I have the capacity? Do I have the skills? Do I have the, the, the role that allows me to then take the account and have the ability to then really be fully accountable? Um, and in many organizations, that accounting and that ability are gummed up a bit. You know, um, in, in one sense, the, the board, the ultimate governance overseeing uh, a company's state of not only internal controls, but their performance, they have to be accountable for that, uh, which then waterfalls down through the structure of the organization. But when you get within the organization, I've had this debate and argument with many, many peers that that would all overstate this, prefer this, to wrap themselves in a Teflon blanket and say, I'm not accountable. The business accepted the risk. I, I frankly think that's bullshit. If you're going to take the C job, you want to be an executive, you want to have a seat at the table, there's two things. You got to earn it or you got to take it. And at the end of the day, then you have to be accountable. It doesn't mean other people aren't accountable, but you have to stand up and be, you know, saying, I own this. And even if the business accepts the risk, guess what? My job is to mitigate the risk should it ever occur. Why? Because that's my job. And a lot of people go, well, the business accepted the risk. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't look at it that way. Hold me accountable and I'll hold everybody else accountable. The CFO doesn't get a get out of jail card for financial integrity issues or misaccounting of dollars, even though a business or a procurement person or somebody else might have done it. They're ultimately accountable for that fiduciary um, stuff for the, the company or the enterprise. General counsel can't, you know, absolve themselves of um, responsibility for the keeping the company legal. The head of HR can't, you know, hold themselves and say, I'm not accountable if there's a hostile work environment. So why do we get to say, well, there's a cyber risk, the business accepted, I didn't have the budget, I didn't have the staff and create all the excuses um, to deflect accountability. And, and I think the easiest way to drive accountability is for us to stand up and own it. And then we'll be able to appropriately drive it. Yeah, and it's, it's a really good point. I mean, you you, you take on that C title, right? It, it's not just, hey, you know, I've made it. This is my, you know, cool new cred that I got. It, it, it means something. You are responsible and you are accountable for what occurs on your watch. And I, I know for me, one of the things I, the conversation I've had a lot with people in cybersecurity when they complain that, well, you know, 
I, I told them this was bad, but the business did it anyway. Or, you know, I, I, I told the executives we needed to spend more money here and they refused and now we got breached or whatever. Okay, so turn that around for a minute. And does that may be an indicator that you could have done a better job of communicating it. And this is the thing that I, I, I think we sometimes are a little too willing to abdicate our own responsibility and accountability for, it's my job to not just give them the information. It is my job to understand who they are, how they think, and provide them the information in a way that they can actually digest it the way I want them to, or the way that they need to, to truly understand it. Because I don't think there's any business leader out there who's going to make a decision saying, okay, I know this is a really bad thing and it's going to blow up in my face, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> if they make that decision seemingly, it's probably because they didn't fully understand the ramifications. They were confused or just sick of listening to you talk about tech without providing any, you know, plain language demonstration of what this actually means, or you tried to scare them to death and they just kind of said, well, I don't want to deal with you because that's scary. So, I mean, is that, do you see that as kind of a part of, is that accountability? Yeah, no. Does that fall into integrity? Where does that lie? You're, you're totally right. You know, again, part of the, the noise and the confusion we have uh, in the space some of it is perpetuated and driven by the security industry itself. One, because the security industry profits from the insecurity of computing. So the more risk that occurs, the industry revenue grows. Um, and there's actually data to support that. Piper Jaffrey, uh, five, six years back, did a uh, correlation between uh, breaches and the stock prices of security companies. Yep. And there was a 74.1% correlation between those things. So, oh, of course. Right. <laughs> you that issue. Um, you also have the fact that, like I said, there's, there's all this noise. When, when people go talk to the business, they can talk in over technical terms. They don't connect the dots between a cyber risk and an enterprise business risk so that people can see the connective tissue between this system, this application, this device, this network segment, and an oh shit moment that's gonna cause a, a material risk for the business. And, and we use a bunch of approximations for the state of the state. Well, we patched Log4j within a week at 95% effectiveness because CISA said this and the SEC said that and whatever, whatever, we pulled the business through a knot hole and, bunch of disruption, but boy, we did a good job patching log4j. Or you go, and we don't know where it is. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know the context of it, right? Um, so I saw a lot of that happening with respect to that. And you go, you look at it and you go, okay, well, that's, that's a failure of recognizing the difference between vulnerable and exploitable. Yeah. They're different. You can be vulnerable and not exploitable. And, and certainly, not exploitable to a material impact or material harm. And the way in which we've managed security is all these, you know, and again, I, I don't want to sound negative and, and it's something that we need to do, you know, attack surface and vulnerability management and hygiene, absolutely things that we need to do. But guess what? Um, everything is at the surface level, right? And, and we fail to understand 
and, and take action on the depth of the attacks within the organization, because it's, it's easier in the industry drives us, the compliance regimes drive us to, to manage at the surface rather than go, what are the 50 instances of Log4j that could really bite me in the ass that then connect to an identity of this, that then daisy chain their way through the environment, all the north, south, east, west, lateral movement to then create the oh crap moment on a particular data set, system, business process, right? We, we look at all the components. We fail to really um, see and understand those attack paths that exist in our organization and really the exploitability of the enterprise to material risk. And, and that's basically you know, a failure because of the way in which we, we are instrumented to understand the environment because it's so complex. I've got on-prem, I've got cloud, I've got this, I've got that, I've got an OT environment, I've got an IT environment, I've got a building management system, I've got people all over the world, I've got BYOD, I have third parties. Well, how do you map all that stuff to thread the needle between something irrelevant and something that matters, right? Yeah. That, that's, we can solve that problem. We can solve that issue, which I believe we can. We can then have the right information to create a bend in the curve of risk. We can transform ourselves to taking more proactive um, actions to manage and mitigate risk. And we can then have a, 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 uh, a very specific and understandable dialogue with the business around what's at risk, the actions we can take to mitigate it. And because we can't eliminate risk where we can't break an attack path, where we can't um, you know, uh, categorically eliminate it, what are those pivot points of exploitability that we put our eyes on glass in the sock instead of drowning in all the alert fatigue? What are the hundred pivot points that we have to manage in anything that goes bump we're accountable to a time to detect in under 10 minutes and a time to contain in under 30 minutes. If we structured ourselves for outcomes and then held ourselves accountable to outcomes, not only on risk, but on total cost of controls, but also on the friction security creates on the business, we would end up in a better spot. And see, this is what I think is crucial here. If we want them to understand, right? It, it's there, there's this phrase out there. I'm sure you've heard this cliche too, right? The uh, don't ever let a, a good crisis go to waste or don't let a good breach go to waste or good incident, whatever. Right. And what is, what is the message that we're usually sending there? The message always is, Hey, you had this breach, their pocketbooks are open, go get yourself paid and get some new stuff. Right. But what we miss and what I think is critical and, and, you know, playing off of what you were just describing is why not reinforce the good? Why not take that incident and say, hey, you know what? And this is, people are probably tired of hearing me talk about this, but Log4j, hey, you know what? Two years ago, we got you to invest in software composition analysis. We just had this Log4j incident. We had far less friction on our engineers than other organizations because they, we didn't have to make them go search for it. Within hours of the breed or of the incident being announced, we had all that information out of our SCA tool and we just provided it to them. We were able to prioritize it like you were saying. Yeah. I feel like if we can reinforce those elements and say, all right, here now, understand how what you paid for did these things that made it better. 
Now they kind of gain better knowledge. Yeah, you know, I had this notion a few years back that I've I've given a, cu- a couple talks on um, on again the economics of insecurity, which I touched on briefly um, just a little bit ago. But we've 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 gotten ourselves into this habit of, and I and I like the notion of defense in depth. Don't get me wrong, but defense in depth has become expense in depth. And what we continue to do is just ask for more, 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 rather than show and and be accountable to doing better. And and again, I look at this again. I'm a former finance guy, and I grew up in a company that had multi-billion-dollar manufacturing plants. Right? We have to get yield off of our security investments, and if we're accountable to demonstrating where we're getting yield and what we need to do to get more yield out of uh, the controls that we have in place, or in some cases, get rid of the flipping controls because they're a drag coefficient on the business. They're creating a systemic business risk by slowing it down. And then guess what? You're driving your business and user around you because you just jacked up their entire approach to the world, right? So, So everything we've done is in many ways driving the user and the business around us, driving more risk. You go, how stupid is it, right? So I look at this as an economics problem and I go, how do we become more efficient and effective? And if the control isn't efficient and effective, get rid of it. And if it's in a, comp- contr- if it's in a compliance uh, um, mandate and it's impeding the business and really not an effective control because people are going around it, get rid of it. Sometimes less control is actually more control, right? So you have to start thinking about the psychological aspects, the uh, the, um, societal aspects and how people sociologically um, play with these things, almost a, a behavioral economics approach to end user behavior, executive decision-making, and a strong focus on efficiency and effectiveness from the security team. And like I said, in some cases, and I've done this before. You talk about limited budgets. We, none, of, none of us have the budget we want. But guess what? No other business leader does either. Um, if you're running a PL, you don't have everything you want. You have to hit a margin, a product cost, and a number, which guess what? Is a constraint on all the things you'd like to do. So yeah. what I would always try and do is if I knew a spot where I had a control that was a control I needed, but was incredibly inefficient on a part of the business, I'd go to the business and say, hey, if I can speed up the sales cycle by 25% by stripping away these controls that require a field application engineer to go ask mother may I before they get these sensitive documents and then do this check-in and check-out process and all this other stuff that's adding to your ability to respond to an RFP with a customer, how much is that valuable to you? I've had heads of sales and marketing. It's like, you can do that across a few thousand salespeople. How much is it going to cost? And I'll go, give me a million dollars. Give me three months. I'll rearrange the control environment, make you more efficient. And in reality, all I did was I held risks static, changed the control environment. They got more efficient. I got money from them. I retooled some things there. And then I took the money and then I invested in another problem that I didn't have the money to go solve. Right. So I look at it and I go, everybody's budget's my budget. I just have to look at how to make them more efficient and they'll pay me to go do that. 
Exactly. I absolutely love this. This is so, I did not know that when we talked about you coming on the show, you and I were going to be like such in such lockstep here, but this is incredible. Um, So before we run out of time, I want to make sure to pivot into one other thing. And that is you're going to be at RSA. I'm going to be at RSA as well. That's coming up in just a few weeks. You're speaking on a panel at RSA and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I'm I'm moderating at a panel with um, a few other wonderful chief information security officer, um, Pamela Fusco, who runs security at Splunk. Yep. Um, Jerry Davis, who runs security for Pacific Gas and Electric, and then Juan Gomez Sanchez, who runs security for Whirlpool. Oh, that's and, cool. All right. Yeah. So the the topic is integrity matters, and we actually did this as a, a webcast for the RSA conference almost a year and a half ago two ago, right after COVID hit and we all went virtual. And it's something that's near and dear to all of us. And we decided to do it again, but this time in in, uh, live at the RSA conference, now that we're back to a live event. Um, And it's all around, again, some of those ethical things that we talked about and, and the pressures sometimes the security executive faces to water down or dilute the portrait of risk. I did a survey a year and some ago, right going into or right after we had done the the webcast on it. And over a hundred respondents in in senior security roles, director of InfoSec, CISO uh, type thing. The the data said 76% of us have either been asked or have actually watered down risk. Now that is truly an integrity issue, and it's exactly. yeah, it, and it's it's also an issue of potentially the longevity of your career. If you say, "Hell no, not on my blankety blank watch," is this going to happen? Right. So I, I don't think there's a perfect answer, but we're going to talk about those issues. Talk about the instances where we've felt those pressures, how we've managed them, how to navigate it. And then talk about the tough choice of basically putting your job on the line and and when some of us have had to do that and what the outcomes of that have been. Awesome. So when is that panel? June 6th, uh, 1 p.m. Uh, I can't remember which Moscone uh, location, but it's on the Monday. Uh, oh, and, uh, you know, as RSA typically does, my guess is it'll be recorded. So it'll also be uh, available okay. afterwards to uh, to watch. I'm hoping because you said the 6th and I'm like, I realize and I'm flying in on the 6th. I don't know that I'll be there in time to catch it, but I definitely want to check this out because yeah, this is, I'm even for people who aren't in those audiences of, you know, executive or high level senior leaders, we've all seen it happen. I think at some point or another in our careers or, you know, and and so I'm very interested because I certainly have had, you know, in my past, those CISOs who I've watched do that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear the perspectives you guys have on that. So awesome. Well, I can't believe we're here already. I, I guess, I swear to God, I'm just going to record that line because I say it every week, but I mean it every week. We're, we're at the time to wrap it up, but this was great. I mean, really, I, I I could do this again like a million times with you because I think you and I see eye to eye on a lot of things and would have a lot to share. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Alyssa, and happy to be here. And just uh, one one final uh, yeah. word of wisdom. 
do more than uh, listen to what people say, watch what they do. It will be a telling way to figure out where you stand and uh, who you can trust. Definitely. I, that is really important for, I think, a lot of people to hear. Probably everybody, yes. Because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. So, unfortunately, we got to wrap up. Um, one quick announcement. I think I can make this because it's official. If not, hey, I let the cat out of the bag early. They might yell at me. Oh, well, tough. Um, we're talking about RSA, uh, folks. Just so you know, Wednesday, June 8th, I will be live from RSA with a very special guest. I am super excited. We're putting the finishing touches on it, but I will have Jen Easterly on this show live with me, director of CISA. I couldn't be more excited about this. Um, so that's super cool. Uh, the episode will actually be a little later in the day. I think we're going to be about two hours behind our normal time slot, just so you're aware. We'll, I'll make all the announcements on social media, so watch out for that. But in the meantime, keep coming back. We've got great guests every week. Malcolm has been wonderful. We've got more coming up. And uh, we'll keep doing it right here on Securing Bridges. Thanks so much and take care, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Securing Bridges podcast with Alyssa Miller. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.